This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Coinbase. For a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash mrcreeps. And Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com slash mrcreeps to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. Hello everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. Not too much a surprise, but we have another jam-packed week of scary stories. Let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was sent a creepy deep web video. I think it might have been real. Written by New to Town Jam. Sea air. It's idyllic. People crave it. To live beside the seaside is considered a privilege. Some sort of a picturesque life that those living in cities can only dream of. That's the sort of thing that they told me. My friends online. The part of growing up by the sea that others don't tell you about or, for the most part, even consider, is the loneliness. The pool of friends and love interests is that much smaller, especially in the tiny ocean towns. It's what drove me to a life of lurking the darkest corners of the internet, trying to satiate my need for some kind of human connection. I'm a horror fan. I've spent hours lurking the sub and a million other dark and interesting forums on the web. I won't name the place that I found my friends. I wouldn't want others to go digging and end up in the sort of predicament that I find myself in. After all, I'm sure most of you are just like me, merely looking for a scare before bed and someone to talk to. The friends that I made online were pretty intense, obsessed with urban legends, unsolved mysteries, and finding the real scariest stuff that's been posted online. I suppose I was no different. Not at first, anyway. I reveled in the grainy video footage, and my favorites were the tales that you couldn't quite disprove. I wasn't alarmed about the obsessive direction my friends were taking until the guy with the username Loiters with Intent started posting to the forum. He got involved in the Discord and became a big player amongst the group. He claimed to have spent years proving urban legends to be real. As skeptical as the group could be, we all desperately wanted proof. For even one of the mysteries that we had obsessed over to be real, it would have vindicated all the hours we spent discussing them. Loiters with intent was the kind of guy that no one wanted to admit they were a little bit scared of. While the others were sharing memes and John Bennett theories, 
he was sending us freaky videos from the depths of the web with some pretty rough stuff and jumps that looked perfectly realistic. When he sent us instructions to access one of the websites for a video, I knew that it had to be some deep web stuff. But it didn't squash my curiosity. I had always been fascinated by the idea of surfing the deep web, browsing the dark and mysterious corners of the internet to my heart's content. It had some type of a sick allure to it, and I'd often find myself looking for worse things that people have seen on the dark net, those type of threads over the years. I followed the instructions to the letter, and I was met with a mostly blank webpage with a tiny video box in the middle of it. In red letters above the extra small video box were the words, A Birth of a Legend. I wondered if Loiters with Intent had made it himself in some poor attempt to scare us all. I wasn't very technological. I had only been able to access the website with instruction, so I had no idea how difficult or easy that might be. I pressed play, and the first thing that I was confronted with was a beautiful girl. Man, she looked terrified, but she was so stunning. Long, wavy, dark hair and deep brown eyes lured me in, but the terror that glazed them made me feel wholly uncomfortable. If the girl was acting, then she deserved an Academy Award before she ever said a word. The cameraman backed up a bit and I could see that the girl was stood on an unfamiliar empty beach. Run, came a voice from behind the camera, a mocking and gloating man. Please, it hurts so bad, the girl replied, voice cracking as she spoke directly into his camera. If anyone's watching, please help. She wore a tattered white dress. The sort of dress a girl like that would wear to a fancy party. But it looked like she had been away from the party for quite some time. There were rips, exposing bruises that covered her whole body. My heart broke as she attempted to run across the sand, dripping and stumbling as the cameraman laughed and mocked her. The beach in the video was huge. A vast expanse with no sign of reaching a town or land. As the camera panned around, I could see that the sand stretched on for miles. If the guys wanted to do something to her, then she had no chance of escaping. He was allowing her a head start purely for his own amusement. The sicko. Discord notifications pinged my phone on the desk as the others made their way through the video. WTF, man. What is this, Loiters? Is this real? Ah, nice try, but that's definitely a fake. I remained fixated on the video. A girl trying to run and hide in the open landscape. With a choice between miles of sand or the thick barrier of rock pools that met the water. It was no choice at all, really. In her position, I probably would have just laid down and accepted my fate. The camera turned around to face the cameraman, fully clad in a balaclava. 
He lifted the mask just enough so that the viewers could see his ravenous smile. Well done to the highest bidder. This is for you. He walked towards the girl, his steps making a lot more progress than her frantic, panicked running. He wiggled a screwdriver in front of the camera as he approached her and she fell to the ground. Watching the video from the cameraman's POV felt voyeuristic, like it was me standing above the poor woman with a weapon, like I had taken her there. I winced hard as he brought the screwdriver down with force. He hit every non-lethal area possible before finally ending it with a stick to the eye. He dragged and took her body into a deep rock pool then turned the camera to face him one more time. Balaclava still rolled up above his mouth. I hope you bottom feeders like that. Time for some real bottom feeders to enjoy her now. He laughed evilly, relishing what he had done. I felt tears roll down my cheeks. It was too realistic. I felt responsible for not saving her. For her demise. For making my way through an entire video like that. I felt wrong. But then the video took a turn. The smile turned to an expression of shock before the man dropped the camera. Sounds of screaming overtook and I could hear my Discord notifications going wild. But I didn't stop to check them. I couldn't tear myself away from the screen. The screaming ended promptly and the camera shook as it was lifted to focus on the body of the cameraman. Still clad in his balaclava but now lying face up on the rock pools. I wish I could say that he had gone through all the same that the girl did, but he had definitely met his demise. And most alarmingly, his entire face was covered with small baby crabs, nipping away at it. I felt sick, fought back the bile, and I pushed my computer chair about a foot back from the screen. The camera turned around once more to face the new videographer, she was just as beautiful as before, despite her dark waves being a little distressed. Parts of her eye were smeared around the socket and inside it were more of the tiny little crabs. They weren't consuming her the same way as they were the man, just decorating her face. She smiled a wide, unnatural smile and then spoke. You should have tried to help me. Instead, you just watched. I'll see you soon. And then it went black. I tried to steady myself a little. I had seen what probably amounted to thousands of creepy and dark videos on the web, but never anything like that. Everything that I had seen before still had a grain of skepticism about it. But something about what I had just seen it felt so... real. I wondered if it had been a live feed... If it had, was she really addressing me? It felt like she had. I lifted my phone to check the notifications and to see what the others were saying about it. There were a ton of messages, mostly expressing pure shock and confusion, quite a few insisting that it couldn't be real. The only one that stood out to me was a single message from Loiters with Intent. This video was part of a live stream on the deep web, 
as the result of an auction held by a hitman. The winning bidder chose the girl from the party and the weapon. Rumors on those forums state that every viewer of the original stream found themselves drawn to the beach and disappeared mysteriously not long after watching. I never clicked play, but I knew you guys would. Prove it, real friends. Beware the crab woman. His message had made most of them laugh. They couldn't get over the ridiculousness of the crab woman. And in all honesty, every single one of us were so desensitized to this stuff, some more than others. Monsters and creature features were something of a joke in our community, a subgenre to be mocked. A few of them even praised the video's production values, asking if Loiters had any more, but hours passed and no new message from him had appeared. I didn't say anything else either. Something about the video made everything that we were interested in seem dirty, sinister somehow. I couldn't get that beautiful girl out of my mind. The sheer terror in her eyes at the start. Even if it was fake, those eyes would haunt my dreams. I thought about what Loiters had said too. And to be honest, living by the sea made me nervous. As far as I knew, none of my other anonymous friends lived this close to the ocean. They could joke about an urban legend that suggested they would end up on the beach dead without any real consequence. I was creeped out and for me, it was a little close to home. So I did what I could to push it out of my mind. I spent a few days watching Disney movies and browsing much fluffier places on the internet. I muted my Discord notifications. I didn't want to talk about creepy stuff for a while. It encouraged me to get out and I started to take daily runs, attempting to improve my fitness in the hope that I could maybe make some in real life friends. And thankfully for me because of my new habits, it seemed to be working. It had been weeks since I had even thought about the girl, the crab woman, the man in the balaclava, and the horde of tiny crabs that had consumed them both. Loiters with intent and his freaky message had been all but forgotten until a few hours ago. I left for my run today, just like I always did. I ran along the cliff top and past the bandstand. I don't know at what point I climbed down the stairs to the beach, but I did. And I found myself there, exhausted. I did what any human does and I tried to rationalize it in my head. The beach, it didn't look like the one in the video. It wasn't a vast expanse and there were other people on it. There were steps to the left and a slope to the right. I convinced myself that my forgotten journey was simply my mind playing a trick on me. The video had bothered me so much that I had ended up at the beach as some sort of sick, subconscious joke. That's when I started typing this out. I thought maybe if I processed what I saw then, that I would be able to get over it. It was therapeutic at first. 
sitting here in the sea air, typing out my experience, cathartic even. But the last time that I looked up, I realized that something was seriously wrong. There aren't any steps to the left anymore, or the slope to the right. The cliff top has all but disappeared, and all I can see for miles on end is sand. The people have gone too. All but one, that is. I'm sure that I can see a girl sitting on the rock pools. Thank you so much to Coinbase for sponsoring today's Creepscast. Cryptocurrency. It's almost become a sort of a buzzword in recent years, but I can assure you that it's worth getting to know more about. I used to feel like crypto was just confusing, complicated, and beyond my reach. But after I started to use Coinbase, it's all become crystal clear. I'm a big fan of diversifying my assets, and since I've started, cryptocurrency has become an important cornerstone of my financial outlook. Coinbase makes it quick and easy to start your own portfolio and learn to trade like a pro. Coinbase offers a trusted and easy-to-use platform to buy, sell, and spend cryptocurrency. As a testament to that, millions of people from over 100 countries trust Coinbase with their digital assets. For a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash mrcreeps. Sign up at coinbase.com slash mrcreeps for $10 in free Bitcoin. This offer is for a limited time only, so be sure to sign up today. That's coinbase.com slash mrcreeps. I think I found God's new commandments. Devil, please save us. Written by Wretched Wanderer. I love to take walks through nature. It just helps me clear my head and get me some free cardio. I live in a pretty rural part of the American South, so it's a very reclusive place away from most noise and people. Not much goes on around here. Yesterday, I went for another walk. It was very routine and nothing was too out of the ordinary. Walking through the trees, however, I started noticing something was unorthodox about the wildlife. There usually is a bunch out here. Deer, bears, coyotes, birds, squirrels, nothing too atypical. I love walking down the trails and seeing all the tracks left through the night, and listening to the singing birds and the bouncing squirrels. Today, there is an odd stillness. I walk through a usual trail that I take, deep in the sticks, and notice that there was nothing. No wildlife. Not a bird, a squirrel, or an odd flock of turkey. Nothing. Maybe something was in the area, I had figured. A predator. I carried on with my attention alert. But as I wandered, I didn't spot a single track. There was no deer, no turkey, nothing. Not a paw print marked in the dirt. I thought maybe there were some poachers or loggers or some kind of human activity nearby. But in all 20 years of living here, 
I've never come across someone doing something like that. Perhaps today was the day, I figured, and maybe they were still here. I always carry some defense, you never know what you'll find out here, and maybe I could catch them red-handed. I continued with my eyes darting and hand close to my hip. The trail led to a large rock perched on a hill in the clearing. The path looped around the rock and was my turn around back home. It had been there since the dawn of man, older than any tree that grew in those woods. And as I approached the rock, I noticed something different. There was something etched into it. I've been past here probably a couple hundred times, last time just the week before, and I've never noticed this in my life. It was odd symbols, none that I've ever seen before. It left me enamored. They were very clear, fine lines, like drawn in with a laser. I took a photo to see if I could find anything about it when I got home. As I started to turn my way back, I noticed something out of the corner of my eye. Blood. It seeped from the text down the face of the stone. I didn't understand. How the heck could a rock be bleeding? I still don't know, but it scared the heck out of me. I hightailed it back home and looked at the photo. And when I did, I thought that I was going absolutely insane. It was just a blank rock. I couldn't sleep that night. It was like something was watching me, I swear. Like some sleep paralysis demon was in my room, waiting for me to shut my eyes to steal my life away. I finally managed to be tired enough to pass out and I had a dream. It was of God. God showed me the rock. He showed me the text. He told me that it was his final commandments. He told me that it was his goodbye. I couldn't tell you what he looked like. It's like out of some Lovecraft novel. Too hard to explain. More like a feeling of him. It was so vivid. I'd never had a dream like that. I woke up and I would have written it off as some bizarre, fantastical visage of my imagination. It wasn't. Because when I woke up, I was writing something on the wall. It was these same symbols on the rock. They weren't burned into my head or anything. I could barely remember the first line. And I was carving it with my nails. I was in absolute horror and in tremendous pain. My fingers were sopping with blood. Something was egging me on though. I didn't know what they said. I don't know why and I didn't want to know. Either some manic scrambling or the actual words of God himself. Either way, it was something that I didn't want to even look at. But I had to. I finally found the symbols online. Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew. Heck, I barely read the whole Bible. I'm not a religious person. I always thought it was some cooked up power struggle. But I carved Hebrew into my walls with my own nails. I managed to translate it to English and I read it all to myself. It was the last commandments. 
They were really the last words from God. I felt everything he said. It was this feeling with that and the dream. I just knew that it was something very bad. I'm not going to type it all into this post. I'm not going to the hospital. I'm going to hit post on this message. And I'm abandoning you. Believe me, I'm saving you the trouble of knowing what I now know. And there is no way in this world that I'm staying long enough to see what I saw. His final plan. I can't take the writing off the wall. He won't let me. Please. If they find it, don't read it. Seek sanctuary in nothing. Sanctuary is long gone. May the devil save you all. Goodbye. My dad got a strange and creepy email from one of his students before they went missing. Written by IVLO11. So, my dad is a professor at a university in Canada, and he received a very strange email from one of his students. He showed it to me and we laughed about it, but things got quickly weird when we found out the student had gone missing. My dad brought it to the authorities and they told him that others had received the same email. It's currently an open case and I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to share this, but it's really creepy. I hope that they find him. I hope this isn't real. We called it the Happy Birthday Hellspawn. To Redacted. From Redacted. Subject. I'm afraid. If you're reading this, know that I'm afraid. I have no one to turn to. All I can do is try and explain the fear that has haunted me every year since I was born. I see no point in protecting this family secret, as I have since been deserted by them. I'm alone this time around, and I'm afraid that I won't make it out alive. For most of my life, you could say that I had a pretty regular upbringing. I was raised by loving parents, encouraged to get good grades in school, and got grounded if I fell out of line. And being the youngest of three, I was always pushed around by my older brother and sister. In many ways, I was like every other kid. My family made it especially important that I feel that way. But by no means did we live an ordinary life. You see, like everyone else, I had a birthday. Only it wasn't what others would consider a celebration. The earliest memory that I have of her birthday is on the eve of my fourth one. I remember driving for hours through the country roads with my family up to a lonely cabin in the middle of nowhere. Upon arriving, my father took me into a room in the basement with my sister, who was seven at the time. He left us there with a couple of toys and told us to sit quietly and play no matter what we heard upstairs. Now, early memories are a strange thing. As a child, you don't really know what you actually recall and what's your imagination. I always struggled with one particular detail of that night as I grew up. It wasn't the fact that my sister and I were locked in what seemed to be a fortified room. It was the fact that my parents and my brother, who was a 10 at the time, were brandishing rifles and weapons. At that age, I convinced myself that it must have been in my head. 
but as I got older, the illusion dissipated. That morning, I remember my sister and I being blindfolded out of the cabin before being loaded into the car. The ride home was strangely quiet. My parents were exhausted and beaten. I'll never forget the look on my brother's face. He was never the same after that day. After that night, things went back to normal. As I entered a preschool that year, like most kids, I attended a string of birthday parties for my classmates, all of which included cake, presents, piñatas, and goodie bags. A very big contrast to what I experienced on the anniversary of my birth and of my siblings. I was a pretty observant kid. I quickly realized that something was off as I got older. When I asked my mother for a birthday party like that of my other friends, she dismissed the idea and told me that one day I would understand. The following birthdays were almost exactly the same, only it seemed my family was doing a better job at hiding whatever it was I thought I saw on that previous birthday, perhaps realizing that I started retaining information at that age. The basement that I previously remembered as fortified was now full of color and it looked like a playroom with eight different types of locks on the door. Given the evidence, I always assumed that my family was having an adult gathering in the cabin upstairs. A celebration too mature for me and my sister. The sounds that I would hear creak through the ceiling gave the impression of loud and rowdy behavior. I remember listening to the commotion and wondering what could be going on. I'd imagine that the echoing banks from outside the basement walls were fireworks. The loud screams belonging to the excited extended family that I never met. My young and arrogant self fantasized that it was a celebration in my honor. On my seventh birthday like usual, my father brought me down to the basement, only this time I was alone. My sister, having turned 10 that year, was finally old enough to take part in the celebration, I presumed. On the ride home that morning, something had changed in my sister. The look on her face was similar to my brother's on that morning after my fourth birthday. She, too, was never the same. I always wondered what had changed. My siblings almost resented me, ignoring me and keeping their distance. Even despite all the tense silences, they were very protective of me and I didn't know why. Sometime during that year, as I waited for my siblings at the bus stop after school, something strange had happened. An old lady stood a foot away from me, looking through my soul with her piercing eyes that seemed almost pitch black. The way that her skin wrapped around her bones was unusual. She murmured some words under her breath before a creepy smile spanned across her face. I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't shaken. When my brother arrived, he pulled me behind his back as my sister defensively stood up to the old lady with her own piercing gaze. They didn't say a word to her, but as my brother pulled me away, I looked back at the old lady and I read her lips. I'll be seeing you soon. I don't want to paint the picture that my family and I didn't have any great times or fun memories because we did. However, the closer that we got to my birthday, I'd always feel this sense of tense uncertainty around the dinner table. I knew that something was going on. 
My father would take my brother and sister somewhere for hours while my mom and I stayed at home. I was being kept in the dark about something that much I knew. It wasn't until a couple of months before my 10th birthday that I realized that I would soon come face to face with the truth. After all, turning 10 seemed to be what got you out of the gap in basement. Three months before I turned 10, my mother and father sat me down at the table to finally reveal the truth. Since the day they told me, I feel like I haven't woken up from one long nightmare. This is where you might think what I'm writing is something made up, but I assure you that it's not. Please don't stop reading. I need someone to understand. I don't know these specifics as my parents only told me what I needed to know. But before they had immigrated to Canada from Redacted, they were unable to conceive and were desperate to have children. So they went to a woman who had dealt in black magic, and she somehow made it happen. And that's when my brother was born. After my sister was born and my mother was pregnant with me, my parents decided to move to Canada to give us a shot at a better life. Again, I'm not too sure about the details, but something happened between the deal my parents had with the woman that led her to cursing them. The next words out of my parents' mouth changed my life forever. The curse was on their youngest child, that they be returned to the entity that gave them the ability to conceive. It was this revelation that made everything make sense. I know what I'm about to say may sound ridiculous to whoever reads this, but this is not a joke. Every year on the anniversary of my birth, something evil comes for me. It has a name, but it should never be repeated. It's not from this world, and it's not human. From midnight to dead hour, it comes after me relentlessly. Since I was a child, my parents have protected me from it. And when my siblings became old enough to fight, they too protected me from it. That tenth year of my existence was the first time that I would face it with my family. Everything made sense after the talk. I revisited those memories of being locked in the basement, all the shaking and rattling of the cabin, the booming sounds of firework, and the loud shouts and the screaming. They were never the celebration I imagined them to be. It was my family defending me from the clutches of the beast that I had soon come to know. I finally understood the looming uncertainty, the fear and anxiousness that came over my family as my birthday approached. Knowing that the days were bringing us closer and closer to a horrifying task, face to face with something insidious and evil, I now knew why my brother and sister resented me. They were children and they were forced to face the boogeyman in order to protect their little brother. I found out that the mysterious trips my father would take my siblings on were to a gun range that he made close to the cabin. I joined them a few weeks before my birthday. I had never held a rifle before. My father made sure that I could at least shoot straight. He never said much while he taught us how to reload a rifle and aim down its sights. But on the last day at the gun range, he told me something that I would never forget. It can be stopped, but it cannot be killed. 
Every time you put it down, it'll come back stronger. One night of bravery and strength for a year of life. Amongst the shared fear of his children, he smiled. He could see the fear in her eyes. His children standing there with rifles taller than me. It made him laugh for a moment. I miss him dearly. The first time I was to face the creature, my parents considered putting me back in the basement to keep me safe. I told them that I would only be more afraid being alone knowing that something was after me. For the first time in my life, I experienced what it was like to not be locked away in the cabin basement. We would unload the car of the rifles and ammunition, fortify the windows, set traps around the perimeter of the cabin, and after sunset, sit down for a family dinner. I was too afraid to have an appetite, shaking in my chair. Out of silence, my brother laughed and then my mother, and then my sister and father. They had faced this creature for years, but for me, it was my first time. Midnight approached. Outside the cabin was an ocean of darkness, nothing but trees for miles. We sat in silence, watching the flames flicker in the fireplace. I asked the question that had been haunting me since I had first learned the truth. What happens if it takes me? My family assured me that it wouldn't happen, but that wasn't an answer. A distant scream came from outside as soon as the clock hit midnight. I froze. All I could do was hide in the corner with the rifle in my hands. My father shouted orders to my siblings and my mother, and just like that, I saw it. Through the window, running on its arms and legs like a dog towards us. It looked human, but the way that it moved was anything but. Pale skin and protruding bones. It hit a trap before I could see its face. It screeched in pain, fighting off the bear trap around its leg. My father went out and put it down. And then another scream, this time on the other side of the cabin. My father ran back in. Every member of my family had a window covered. I was the only one, cowardly, crying on the floor. I couldn't believe it was all real. For hours on end, the creature attacked, coming out of the ground after every previous version of it was put down, bullet after bullet. A few hours in, it was silent. I went over to the window and that's when it grabbed me. It pounced through the window and pulled me by my legs so fast that I hit my head off the ground. To my surprise, I woke up in the hospital the next day. I watched as my parents flawlessly lied to the nurse about the biking accident that had given me a concussion. At that moment, I truly convinced myself that it all had been a dream. My parents were disappointed. They had managed to get the creature before it could drag me away, but it was too close of a call. For the rest of that year, my father took me to the gun range every weekend. As my 11th birthday approached, they decided that it was too risky to have me fight alongside them, so back to the basement I went, only this time medicated, so that I could sleep through the night and hope that I didn't wake up in the clutches of that being that hunted me. I would always ask about the creature, what it was and where it came from. All I knew was that it wasn't from this world. 
I found out that it could take the form of others so that it could get close to me during the year. But only during those four hours of my birthday, from midnight to dead hour, could it actually come for me. This is one of the reasons that my parents built a cabin miles away from any population. It would only be us against the creature, with no one else around to get hurt in any way. The second time that I faced the creature was on my 16th birthday. I was no longer a whimpering coward. I convinced my parents that I could stand my own ground, fight my own battle, and so I did. It didn't look the way that it did before. The creature had changed. It was bigger and stronger. Didn't go down as easy. We never let it get as close as it did that first time around. We changed our strategy and our weapons. But every year, it learned and adapted. The cabin fell apart with every passing year. We did our best to fix it up, but the damages were becoming more significant. I would see it in my nightmares, the creature calling me. The excruciating pain that came at its hands. The darkness of the place that it would drag me to. I would see people throughout the year staring at me in the distance. Their skin hanging off their bones. Just human enough to not call attention. I knew that it was the creature. I became used to it. As I got older, I could feel that it wanted me more. It kept getting closer and closer every time that we fought it. Two years ago, my father died of prostate cancer, four months before my birthday. He died surrounded by all of us, made each of them promise to protect me. I hated that, but I didn't need them. That year, we fought the creature, only the four of us. It got close enough to where I could look into its dead, pale eyes. Since my father's past, my mother's mental health has deteriorated. My brother started a family and told me that he could no longer be there to protect me. Last year, it was only my sister and I that drove up to the cabin. That was the longest night of our lives. It took everything that we had to keep the creature away, and even then, it got close enough to claw her. I took her to the hospital the morning after and told the doctors that we were hiking in the woods when an animal had attacked. He believed us. I sat beside her as she recovered. When she woke up, she told me that she couldn't do it anymore. She wanted to travel and live in new places, eventually settle down and start a family. I understood. I was afraid, but I reassured her that I would be fine on my own. I could see the guilt in her eyes as she betrayed the promise that she had made to my father. A sense of guilt that was missing from my brother's eyes when he told me that he could no longer help. I hate myself for what I've done to my family. This curse that follows me has brought nothing but pain and fear to them. I want this to end, but I don't know how to make it stop. I'm so angry at my brother and sister for deserting me, but I don't blame them. I visit my mom from time to time to see how she's doing. My brother won't speak to me. My sister hardly answers my calls. I'm too afraid to make new friends or find a partner because I don't want to drag them into this. I write this as I sit alone in the cabin. It's my birthday in a few hours. I'm turning 21 and I'm afraid. I don't know if I'll make it out of this alive. For the last few weeks, 
My nightmares had kept me from sleeping. A part of me doesn't want to fight it anymore, but I fear that my fate would be much worse if I let it take me. I don't know if I'll be a match for it, facing it on my own. I wish I could be certain that I'll be around tomorrow, but I'm not. This is why I'm writing to you. If you don't hear from me again, the cabin's location is redacted. Stay on the dirt road. It's clear of traps. If I live to see another day, I'll be returning to redacted to find the woman responsible for this curse and put an end to all of this. Wish me luck. Redacted. Update 1. April 13th, 2022, 2.04 a.m. Please note that I'm sharing the email the student sent to my father who was his professor. He cannot read these comments as he's missing. We got an update on the police investigation. They're heading out to the address of the cabin to search for him, and we'll keep everyone posted. I hope for the sake of my sanity that they find him, and that this whole email he brought up was just a joke. Update 2 April 13th, 2022, 9.13 a.m. We woke up to some chilling news. This morning, the police told my dad that they found the location of the cabin, but unfortunately, it was in ruin, engulfed in flames. And the fire department was dispatched to put out the raging fire. The officer said that they're still working on putting it out, as the flames had managed to spread to the surrounding woods. There's still a chance this could all be a joke, right? We'll keep you all updated once they put up the flames and search the cabin. God, please let this email not be true. To stay updated, check back in to the comment section down below. Updates will be posted there. I would like to thank this week's Creepscast sponsor, Policy Genius. Policy Genius is a marketplace working to help insurance shoppers understand their options, compare quotes, and buy a policy all in one convenient place. My friend was the first person to tell me about Policy Genius, and I'm really glad that he did. Being relatively young, I never really considered the importance of having my own life insurance policy. But the more that I learned, the more it made sense that I should get started now. It provides me with a lot of peace of mind. And typically, life insurance only gets more expensive as you get older. So I thought getting a policy sooner rather than later seemed like the right choice for me. Policy Genius made the whole process simple. It's your one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance that you need. They make it easy. Just click on the link in the description or head to policygenius.com slash mrcreeps and answer a few questions. In minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The team of licensed experts at Policy Genius will help you understand your options and apply for the policy that you choose. Their team works for you not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Head to policygenius.com slash mrcreeps to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. 
Thank you once again to Policy Genius for sponsoring today's video. My work for the military on an Atlantic oil rig. I'm required to make some difficult decisions. Written by Darkly Gathers. The rig is a towering skeleton of steel rising up and out of the water. To walk across its surface from one place to the next is a walk between enormous ribs of cold metal beneath the glare of a hundred blinking lights. Like watchful eyes in the darkness. Red, yellow, white. Staring. The military infrastructure on this rig is minimal at best. Communications facilities with direct channels to superiors, a maintenance station, and a unique modified phalanx seaways. An enormous gun anti-ship in its original design. We use it when required if the shadow in the sea gets too close. My name is Alejandro. I work for the U.S. Army and I dislike working on this rig, but I get no choice in the matter. I am stationed here currently with Leighton and Evie, two fellow soldiers, and about 60 rig workers too. Though our interactions with the crew are minimal, they think we bring bad luck, and they might as well be right. The rig is 250 miles east off the coast of New Jersey. The wind is cold and fierce and I shiver at my station as I squint out over the waves gradually increasing in their intensity as they churn and froth against the rig's great legs. Leighton steps up beside me. I don't know what she's doing here. In the army, I mean, not on the rig. Our purpose on the rig is clear, even if it makes little sense. But Leighton was always too soft for this life, and now she's just too scared to quit, I think. I don't even blame her. Being told what to do is a pain, but at least we have our instructions. The instructions are simple. It's going to rain tonight, Tondro, she says to me. You think? Oh, I know. My hearing's playing up again. Means it's gonna rain. Mm-hmm. I reply disinterested. Also, Command gave me the weather report earlier, she says. In fact, look over there. You can see the edge of the rain if you look real hard. My follower finger end, sure enough, on the gray horizon. There is a shadowed column of rain in the far distance, beneath a steadily rolling, building crescendo of clouds. The relevance of the rain is significant. The dot P is far more likely to arrive during such weather. The greater the obscurity in our surroundings, the more likely it is to appear. I lean back against the rail behind me and rub a hand across my weary eyes. Allow me to explain our duties here. The dot P is an acronym for Disturber of the Peace. It's the name that Leighton and Evie and I came up with to describe the anomaly that plagues this particular rig. The dot P arrives only at night, between the hours of 1am and 6am, and takes the form of a Greenpeace ship. A small to mid-size icebreaker, typically. And the name of the ship varies. But the ship that most often frequents the rig goes by the name of the Watchful Guardian. 
though we've also had visits from Rainbow's End and Forgotten Queen. And we've been in contact with Greenpeace, the organization, the real one. They have no knowledge of such ships and claim no affiliation. These ships arrive out of nowhere, through mist or from the waves themselves. If you're lucky enough to witness an arrival, the crew on board is unique to each of the three ships, though the three crews are constant. I know this only by the clothes that they wear, and by their voices. Their faces are covered to protect them from the cold and the wind, face masks, thick scarves and ski goggles and the like. It unnerved me at first, but now it's just a part of the experience. I sigh. It's all so tiresome. The boredom, the brief little stabs of stress, the circular nature of these cycles of fear, the repetitiveness of it all. The Greenpeace vessel will try to encourage us to join them. That's their thing. To try and encourage us to abandon the rig. And then, when the shadow is due to arrive in the sea, the vessel departs, and off they sail into the mist, and they vanish. The next time they come by, they have absolutely no memory of their previous visit. It's maddening, really, if one chooses to think about it. I choose not to. Instead, I choose to chat it up with Leighton. You ever wonder where the Dapi goes when it leaves for the night? She asked me. It's not the first time that she had asked this question. I used to, I tell her. I don't much care anymore, though. Yeah, but you don't really care about anything, she mutters. Untrue, I say back, but I don't have the energy to argue. Why don't they remember us? She asks. The crew, I mean. How come they always forget? Maybe it's just all an illusion. A trick. So that the shadow in the water can get us. Hmm, no, she says. Shaking her head and wrinkling her nose. I don't think so. The ship always seems pretty scared of the shadow. If it wasn't for the shadow, then they might even stay all night trying to convince us to join them. But the shadow always comes, I say, looking out over the water as the sun disappears beneath the sea. It always does. Yeah, she murmurs. Yeah, I guess that's true. Still, I don't think the crew are evil. They seem too nice. Maybe they really are trying to, you know, save us. They seem too nice, I repeat, shaking my head. They're dangerous. Don't let them into your head. Yeah, she says quietly. Sure. My noise behind me makes me turn and I make eye contact with a rig worker. He gives me a curt nod, glances to Leighton and then carries on along his way, ascending a mesh metal set of stairs to the level above. They think it's our fault, you know. I say to Leighton, again, not for the first time. Our topics of conversation tend to go round and round again, circular. The rig workers think that we're the ones who bring the ship, who draw in the shadow. Maybe we are, she shrugs. Oh, BS. The anomalies came first and we were sent out here to deal with it all. It's not like this ship is dangerous, though, Leighton says. It's never actually attacked us. 
Yeah, that's because we're here. I know you're familiar with deterrence, Layton. We studied it together. She opens her mouth to continue, but I'm not done. And besides, the shadow in the water is definitely dangerous. Maybe our presence here is the only thing stopping the shadow from doing what the dot P always promises it will. And heck, who knows what their true motives are. I'm not convinced, she replies. Are we a deterrent to the shadow too, do you think? Does it even know that we're here? Oh, it knows, I mutter. It really knows. Night falls. Evie's joined us now, and we watch as a trio, our eyes peeled for any hint that tonight might be a night that the disturber of the peace makes an appearance. There's no way of knowing really. As I said earlier, bad weather increases the likelihood, but it's never guaranteed. Command has been trying to establish a pattern, but if they have one, they haven't chosen to share it with us on the rig. I don't even know why we're bothering to even look out for it. The ship, I mean. Just a force of habit, I guess. And the small matter of it being our orders to do so, of course. I suppose it is rather unnerving when the ship appears out of thin air. I don't like being caught by surprise. The rain falls. The waves froth and crash far beneath us. I'm gonna go check out the north side. Evie says to us, What? Layton shouts above a sudden blast of wind. North side, Evie says again louder. I'm going to look for it there. No, I call out. No, don't bother. It's already here. She turns. The Greenpeace ship has begun its grim emergence. Waves crash and bulge out at sea, in a way dissimilar to all the other waves around it. The mist thickens in the area and in this area alone. I think that I catch a glimpse of a shiny white gray hull, but it is hidden from sight almost immediately, as the mist breaks like a bubble and disperses out and across the water. Attention, Evie murmurs beside me. Attention, comrades of the rig. The voice comes blaring across the sea just a few seconds later, rumbling from a megaphone and carried by the wind. Attention, comrades of the rig. I chuckle, raising my rifle. I won't do crap from here, but again, it's part of the procedure. It deterrence, warning shots if required, etc. The vessel begins to enter into plain sight. From the fog, it rises and crashes through the waves, roughly parallel to us, but drawing slowly closer. I grab the binoculars and peer through them for a quick look. I recognize the crew, of course. I scan down to the ship's name. Watchful Guardian. Yep, it's our regular visitor. I look back over the deck and I count five people, all standing roughly the same distance apart, one holding the megaphone. He wears a thick blue parka and a blue mask, with an orange visor and a pair of goggles. The others are all adorned in colorful clothing, too, there's a woman amongst them who wears a pink jacket. She holds the megaphone sometimes. It's impossible to tell the gender of the others. They never speak to us, so we can't even tell by the way of their voices. Comrades of the rig, comes the voice again, 
This rig and the people upon it are in mortal danger. The beast approaches and you will need to evacuate onto our vessel immediately. Do you want to do it this time, Hondro? Evie asked me, holding out the megaphone. A roar of wind makes us all take a step back, and her ponytail is sent whipping around her shoulders. I reach out for the megaphone. Sure, I say, bringing it up to my mouth and lowering my weapon. I step up to the rail and lean out over the edge. I thank you for your concern. I call back over the water, but this rig is well equipped to defend itself. Thank you, and now please, be on your way. You don't understand. The man in the deck replies. He throws out a desperate arm and plea. Your drilling here has encouraged the attention of the beast. He will strike an attack and bring down this rig before the morning. You need to allow us to dock so we can get everyone to safety. You're approaching the limit of the safety zone of this installation. I call back. Well familiar and well bored of this tired old routine. Your ship is in danger of wreckage. Turn your boat around and steer clear. The ship draws closer. It's close enough now for me to read the vessel's name without the use of binoculars. The man lowers the megaphone and says something inaudible to the woman in pink. They both gesticulate wildly. And then the man brings the megaphone back up to his lips. If we are able to dock, then you have a chance to escape. Do you have no radar equipment available? The beast will be converging on this location as we speak. There isn't time for debate. If you want to live, then you need to board now. Thunder ripples through the sky, and a faraway flash casts deep but temporary shadows across our environment. We have radar capabilities, of course, by the way but they never reveal anything in the water. Sometimes we get readings from the dot P itself, but not always. You're too close to the rig and at risk of a wreck. If we believe you to pose a threat to the U.S. citizens aboard this rig, then we will shoot down your ship. Please consider this a warning. Turn your vessel around and depart. Please, shouts the man with such intense desperation that even despite the frequency of this little performance, it still gets to me. That nine doubt. I push it away. Turn your ship around, I shout back. You will not be warned again. We are receiving no signal or suggestion of any threat to this rig but yourself. Turn your ship around. Sometimes the dot P leaves at this point, but sometimes it doesn't. There are a great many variables, and the three of us spent our mornings following these incidents, writing up play-by-plays for a command to study. As I said before, we're yet to receive any meaningful intel back for our report writing. Maybe one day, though. Though our shifts will probably be done by then. Maybe there will be something useful for the next crew. The man in blue hesitates. He talks to the woman in pink and his other three shipmates stand motionless. Sea legs have ironed as the ship rocks and sways on the surface of the sea, but they themselves stand stock still. He brings up the megaphone. Comrade, allow us to dock. This entire rig must be evacuated. The beast will tear this entire apparatus and the people upon it to shreds. Or worse. Please, you must evacuate. You are in danger. All right, 
I muttered Leighton. Fire warning shot. She hesitates. I look at her. Leighton, fire already. She does. There's a bang and a brief flash, though it's impossible to tell if the bullet even struck the ship. The man in blue gets the message, however. I appreciate your concerns, he shouts, but this is no trick and no trap. The beast approaches. We can save you. We can take you to safety, don't you get it? Please, at least, let us dock. Talk to us. Turn your ship around, Captain. I bellow into the megaphone. Or the shots we fire will increase in intensity until the threat that your vessel poses to us has been neutralized. Why are you firing at us? The man shouts back. For Pete's sake, we're trying to help you here. Don't you care? Do you think me a liar? I cannot risk the lives of my crew for you. So this is your final chance. Allow this vessel to dock at the rig, and you will be able to make an escape. We have space aplenty for. Evie, stationed with the Phalanx Seaways, brings the great gun around with a rattle and a mechanical crunch aiming the barrel at the hull of the watchful guardian. The man stops mid-sentence and lowers the megaphone. He shakes his head in frustration and says something to the woman in pink, who immediately runs from the deck and through a door in the cabin. You are warned, soldiers, he calls back. May God save you. I'm sorry. And with this, he too strides from the deck. The other three follow in single file. A horn blares from the ship, cutting through the froth and churn of the dark waves and the rush of the rain. The watchful guardian groans and rumbles and picks up speed, arcing around and away from us in a slow circle. They're leaving quickly tonight, Leighton says anxiously. Don't you think? I glance at my watch. Nah, no, not really. She shifts. I don't know. Haven't you noticed this? I swear that they're starting to leave easier and easier. Easier? Evie asks, stepping down from the rig's weapon. Yeah, you know, like they don't put up much of a fight. You remember way back in the beginning? We could argue with them for hours. Well, we threaten them a little more now. I respond with a shrug. It saves us time for sure. Leighton doesn't respond. She only chews her tongue in thought. A low, bone-trembling rumble warbles through the air. It comes from beneath and shakes the rig in time to the thunder. I can feel myself paling, the blood draining. I hate this part. I know that we'll be okay, I know it, but this part is still by far the worst. Leighton grips the rail, her eyes widening. The beast is loud at this time, too, she says. No, you're imagining things, Evie cuts in. Uh, come on, split and search. Let's see where this thing's going to appear this time. When we separate, running down the sides of the dock, the location of the beast's arrival is a useful intel. And typically, it appears on the opposite side of the rig to the dot P, but again, it's not a guaranteed rule. The rig is deserted as I run between its steel. The workers stay well clear of us during this ritual. It hampers productivity somewhat, I suppose, but what the heck. I don't really care about any of that, and I don't blame them. 
two agonizing minutes pass by. Every second that goes by without seeing the beast sends my anxiety at levels spiking. Every night I convince myself that this will be the one time that the dot has told us the truth. That the shadow in the water will attack and bring down the rig. That will be consumed, drowned, taken, torn apart, or even worse. My heart stops for a moment when I catch sight of it. The shadow in the water. The beast. I grab my flashlight and hold it up to the sky, flickering the thing on and off and on and off. The others, if they see it, will come to join me. If not, well, the rig isn't that big and they'll find me eventually. I peer out over the edge, the wind cold against the exposed skin of my face. The beast is, by my guess, about a half mile long. It is difficult to tell exactly how long, however, as its shadow only becomes visible as it approaches the surface, and it frequently dips and lowers as it navigates the depths of the surrounding sea. My teeth are sent shivering in my gums as that dreadful deep-sea roar reverberates around the steel of the rig, goosebumps rippling up my arms and neck. Hey, Evie says from beside me, found it, whoo, that definitely took longer than usual tonight. You know, I sometimes fear that. Yeah, I interrupt, knowing what she's going to say. Yeah, I know, same. The shadow slithers and snakes beneath the waves, and due to its size, it gives off the illusion of being slow-moving. It's not until it's right beneath us, however, beginning its dutiful circling of our station that one really gets a sense of its speed. The beast begins to circle, around and around. I try to keep the warning words of the Dapi out of my head. I make a mental note of the location of the beast's arrival for when it comes time to write up my report, and I exchange a few words with Evie. She nods and returns to the seaways. She may or may not fire down into the beast. Hopefully she won't. It's rare, very rare indeed that we are ever required to strike the shadow itself. But those nights are not fun. They are not fun in the slightest. I walk the perimeter of the rig until I locate Leighton. She stares down into the water, watching in silence. You good? I ask her. She nods but does not respond. The beast departs as the weather begins to improve. Still in the depths of the night, but the rain and wind are lessening now. With one final terrible roar, the beast breaks its circling and begins to slither off and away into the sea quickly descending back down and vanishing from sight. I allow myself a deep, slow, calming breath of Atlantic air, almost tangibly feeling the tension leave my muscles. Great, wonderful. Another night done and time for bed. I'll write up the first draft of the report now and then go over it and update it in the morning. It's important to write down everything of note before going to sleep while the memories are still fresh. I am always careful to keep Leighton's comments omitted. When she questions our role here, or the hostility of the P, she just speaks before thinking. She's like that and she doesn't mean anything by it. Her words would be considered blasphemous by some and I'm no narc. I write up what I need to and head to my dorm, crashing quickly into a dreamless sleep.
It's four more days until the dot P returns. And we all can tell it's going to be one of those nights, even before the sun is set. Everyone, including the rig workers, are on edge. The clouds spend the course of the day slowly gathering, growing, billowing up and out, and filling with ice and with brutal, bitter water. And I am afraid this evening, actually afraid. I hate myself for it, but I cannot help it. It's the same every time, Alejandro, I tell myself. The exact same. We are never attacked, and nothing ever happens. Just stick with it, and you'll be fine. And so, we prepare for the night. We await the coming of the dot P as the first great sheets of rain begin to wash their way across the horizon towards us. I cringe and brace as the first icy droplets fall into my face. Then more and then, in seconds, the sound of the torrent against the steel and into the sea is almost deafening. I feel weird tonight, Hondro, Leighton says to me, fidgeting. Like, I don't know. Something's different. No, it isn't. I gruffly reply. It's the same as it always is. The last time that the beast was here, she begins, but I cut her off. No, Leighton, don't think about it. There are variations, but the state of play is always the same. The dot P arrives, it leaves. The shadow arrives and it leaves. That's all that there is to it. She murmurs something else, but I don't hear what she says over the sound of the rain. She glances over the rails and into the churning water below. What is it? I ask her. Evie looks over too. Nothing, she says, glancing at me from beneath her hood. I thought I saw. What? I ask. Nothing, she finishes lamely, before turning to take her leave. Preparing for a perimeter walk in search of the dot P. Our line of sight is dreadful tonight. Absolutely dreadful. Evie and I have to get the searchlight working, something that we very rarely use as it limits our night vision. But when we don't have much vision at all, our options are pretty limited. We only have the one though, so once it's up and running, I take command of it, and the two of us use it to scour the sea. Nothing appears. It's gonna appear tonight, surely, Evie asks. I mean on a night like this, surely. You would think, but, but maybe not. I grunt and swing the searchlight around. Maybe it isn't coming tonight at all. Evie snorts with grim laughter. Yeah, if you say so. She pauses. Layton's taking her sweet time. An offhand comment, but still. I lean back from the searchlight and I make eye contact with her. I'm gonna go check up on her. I say, outwardly calm but inside, suddenly panicked. Evie nods, sensing the change in atmosphere. I relinquish control of the light and I set off around the rig's perimeter at a half jog. Layton should have been back by now. She should have been back ages ago. I increase my pace a little, boots splashing in the shining puddles across the rig's surface. They clang against a set of metal mesh stairs as I descend down to a lower platform. 
I glance up and out to see. Crab. I yell out loud and slip on the stairs, grabbing onto the rail for support. I can see the boat, one of the disturbers of the peas. And it's docked. It's docked at the rig way out on the opposite side. I break into a run now, sprinting between the bars and metal bones of the surrounding apparatus, skidding across the platform towards it. I take the final set of stairs at three at a time, landing heavily at the bottom and running across to where the ship rocks and shudders in the waves beside the lowermost platform. And there is Leighton, preparing to board. She looks back at me and our eyes meet. Leighton! I scream out into the storm. What is she doing? What the heck is she doing? She quickly looks away and jumps across to the ship's deck. She lands with a stumble and is welcomed into the arms of the woman in pink, adorned in masks and gloves and goggles. The man in the blue is also there. This must be the watchful guardian. Not that it matters, I suppose. Comrade, he calls out through the megaphone. Welcome, quickly, jump across to the ship. There's still time to get you out of here. To get you all out of here. I stop at the edge of the dock, panting. I've never seen the crew of the dock piece so close. They stand completely still, legs shoulder-width apart, all facing towards me. Layton's hair is blown out to the side in the gale. She clenches her fist and then says something to the man in blue. He nods and passes her the megaphone. Alejandro, she shouts through the device. I think we're supposed to board. They're just going to keep coming. We have to board for the cycle to end. What are you talking about? I shout back, though I have to really project without the use of a megaphone of my own. Who cares about the cycle? Layton, get back out of the rig right now. You're in danger. How could you be so stupid? She violently shakes her head. Tonight is the night, Andro. The beast is going to finally take down the rig, please. If you don't want to be torn apart and lost beneath the sea, then you have to board. They're just trying to save us. Have you lost your mind, Leighton? I scream back. I raise the rifle and aim it at the man in blue. Leighton steps in front of him, blocking the shot. Jesus! I shout at her, furious and terrified. Leighton, please, don't do this. Don't do this, there's still time. I give voice to this thought. There's still time to come back, please. She hands the megaphone back to the man in blue. Comrade, the beast approaches. Are you able to evacuate the rig? Everyone needs to be off in the next few minutes. Please, send her back, I shout to him. Let Leighton off the ship. I don't understand, he calls back. You need to join us. This whole rig is going down. You don't stand a chance against the beast. I'm sorry. Please, evacuate the rig. I take aim and I fire. The megaphone flies out of his hand and a large piece shattered right off. The man in blue stumbles back in alarm as it clatters to the deck. He makes a gesture to his crew, and at once they retreat into the cabin. The ship's engine starts to groan. Leighton shouts something at me, but I don't hear what she says. The man crouches swiftly down and grabs the damaged megaphone, 
calling back one last time. I'm sorry, but I can't put my crew's life in danger like this. May God help you. I hope by some miracle you survive the attack, soldier. And with that, he departs. He opens the door to the ship's cabin and gestures for Layton to go inside. Layton, I shout. Please, just come back. But the ship is pulling away from the dock, rising and falling in the angry waves. And with a final glance, Layton passes through the doorway, and the man in blue follows. The ship pulls back and sails off into the storm. I take aim and fire off a few more shots, though I don't know why I'm bothering. I manage to mark the hull, a nice clear bullet hole by the G of Watchful Guardian, but there is nothing of any use that I can do. Nothing that I can do but watch in distress as the ship turns away, as it sails off through the chaos of the storm and sea, plunging through the waves and into a slow spreading cloud of mist, vanishing from sight. And the beast follows. It always does. And tonight is the worst. I have never felt so close to death. It wastes no time in its emergence, the great encircling shadow, and I am trapped in a state of terror. Why would Leighton board the ship? Why would she board unless she knew? Unless she knew that this is the night that the rig goes down. It's going to attack. The beast is going to attack the rig. We're going to see it all in its truth, in all its horror. I race from the platform's edge to the opposite and back, always keeping eyes on the beast. I relay the situation to Evie, who struggles to believe me, even with the intensity in my voice. Shots are fired into the beast as that monstrous roar ripples off through the rig's metal, as it echoes with the thunder and the waves are sent crashing and frothing above the slithering shadow. The night drags on. Years of my life are lost to the storm through the sheer stress of the situation. The searchlight swings around and around, but the beast is not attacked. Maddeningly, thankfully, torturously, the beast does not attack. Even after everything, the storm, the foreshadows, the warning, there is simply no attack. The beast just circles, around and around and around until the storm starts at last to subside. With a final menacing watery roar, the shadow begins its final descent, breaking off from its path, swimming out to sea and sinking back down into the depths, until it's lost completely from sight. The rain eases, the wind calms and the sun steadily begins to rise, casting its thin gray light across the surface of the sea. And I only stare, still in a state of shock, eyes bloodshot and hands trembling on my rifle. Leighton is all I can think. She's gone. I did see her again, Leighton I mean, during my time in the rig, several times actually, the Dodd P and the accompanying beast appeared to us on six more nights. On one of those nights, we were visited by Rainbow's End, the other Forgotten Queen. But the other four were our regular, the Watchful Guardian. The man in blue was still there, the woman in pink also. But neither of them were the one to call over to us on those final four visits. 
It was Lee Turner. Always Lee Turner. Adorned in goggles that covered her eyes and a thin black mask that covered her face, she called over to Evie and I on the megaphone. She was still wearing her military camo, still equipped with a rifle, and all she did was beg us to join her, to allow them to dock and for us to board the ship, to evacuate the rig and to escape. Each time she tried, I was convinced that the rig was about to go down, that the beast was truly about to tear us all apart. She seemed completely oblivious of her previous visits, and seemingly the events surrounding her own choice to board the P in the first place. I considered shooting her, you know. I looked through these sights of my rifle, wondered if a shot from that range would strike, and then decided against it. Maybe one day she'll find her way back. Maybe I'll get stationed on the rig again. I've requested it, but I'm awaiting the results of my psychological assessments. Time will tell, I guess. But all I can say for certain is that the thing is still standing. As of the time of writing, the beast is yet to finally tear it down. So make of that what you will, I guess. I work graveyard shift at a gas station. Something strange happened to me. Written by Marcus Starr. It was 6am when the stranger pulled into the gas station. He was driving a black Monte Carlo SS. A nice ride. Although I had never seen it around these parts before. I'll admit... I was scrolling through cat videos, paying little to no attention when he had pulled in. These days, I mostly sit on my butt, sell smokes and candy bars and lottery tickets. That's about it. The high-tech pump does the rest. Uh, yeah, it's an easy job, but it comes with its share of risk, especially on the graveyard shaft. No, this isn't a robbery story. Although I wish it was. I've been robbed at gunpoint more times than Madonna sang about, you know what. But I've never actually been shot. I have killed a man in self-defense, of course, but you know, it's all part of the job. The stranger, driving the black Monte Carlo SS, wore a dark hoodie. At first glance, he seemed ordinary. He simply filled his tank and then drove off into the waning darkness of the night. It wasn't until the next customer had arrived about 20 minutes later that I noticed something peculiar. The stranger hadn't actually pumped any gas. Weird, I thought, but not completely out of the ordinary. Maybe the driver was on some stuff and wasn't thinking straight. Wouldn't be the first time. But then it happened again. I'll admit, when the Black Monte Carlo SS pulled in about a week later at exactly the same time, I still ignored him. By 6am, I'm pretty much half asleep and ready for bed. I live in rural Colorado and not much happens here at 6am. When the Black Monte Carlo SS pulled in the following week, now three weeks in a row, 
I snapped myself away from the cat videos and I paid closer attention. By now, I was intrigued. What was this driver really up to? I mean he, I'll presume that he's a he, wasn't causing me any harm, nor was he stealing anything. But why would somebody pull into a gas station and pretend to pump gas? This made no sense. So, this time, I watched him closely. The first thing that I noticed was the size of the driver. He was huge. This was no ordinary man. He stood about seven feet tall easy, and again he wore a black hoodie. No matter how hard I concentrated, I couldn't seem to get a clear view of him. The stranger seemed more like a shadow than an actual person. I must be losing it, I told myself aloud. The sound of my voice gave me a spook. I watched him put his card inside the machine. He pressed the appropriate buttons on the screen and waited, removed his card and put it in his pocket, released the pump and filled his tank. It took nearly five minutes to fill that beast of a car. He shook the nozzle, returned it to its pump and re-entered his vehicle and drove off. When I checked, no gas was actually pumped. I shook my head in disbelief. People sure are getting dumb and dumber these days, you know. Back when I was a boy, these things didn't happen. The moment the stranger sped off, I scurried to the back of the office and pulled up the video and watched it. I zoomed in tight, and right away I knew something was wrong. The driver seemed erroneous. His arms were too long for his body, which was too large for his minuscule head. No wonder he wore a hoodie. His head was quite small in comparison to the rest of him. I zoomed in on his license plate and scribbled down the number, 666-DVL. You've got to be kidding me. Suddenly, I was scared, I mean downright terrified to be honest. I'm all alone in this booth for eight hours at a time, in the middle of the night, in the depths of nowhere, where the closest cop shop is probably 20 miles west of here. If someone wanted to get at me, they could. Now don't get me wrong, I'm armed to the teeth, but still, this guy was really creepy. I went out to check the pump, and immediately the wind slapped my face, as if to warn me again of such boneheadedness. I shivered. It was brutally cold outside. Standing at the pump, I noticed a thin layer of residue covering the pump handle. It was jet black. Stupidly, I reached out for it and got the stuff all over me. Calling this substance gross is like calling LeBron James a decent actor. It was downright repulsive. I tried rubbing the gunk off my hands, but my efforts were futile. Instead, I ended up smearing the stuff all over my pants, shirt, and jacket. After cursing myself for quite some time, I noticed that the residue was also smudged across the display screen at the pump and what appeared to be a pentagram. None of this made sense to me. A thin speck of pale white light appeared in the distance. A car. Maybe it's the black Monte Carlo SS, I thought. Maybe the stranger isn't finished with me just yet. Maybe the stranger is coming back to get me. Panicking, I ran inside and fetched my 9mm, 
If that creep so much as entered the store, I'll blow his freaking brains out. I've got no time for this. My hands were trembling. This residue had forged itself onto the gun, and now its handle was sticky and gross. This was hideous stuff that I was dealing with. I couldn't get rid of it. The smell was so putrid that I, the entire cubbyhole that I worked in reeked to high heaven. And worse, the smell was intensifying with each passing second. The vehicle pulled in. To my relief, it wasn't the Black Monte Carlo SS. It was a hippie van covered in fish and Grateful Dead stickers. I sighed. Talk about non-threatening. An attractive woman with blonde dreadlocks stepped out. She stretched, filled her tank, and then entered the shop. She smelled of cannabis and patchouli, a vast improvement from the foul odor perpetuating in the shop. To this, I was grateful. Got any soap in here? She asked upon entering. She was wearing a handmade dress underneath her brown suede jacket. I've got this stuff all over me from the pump. You really gotta do something about that, you know. She was clearly upset by all this stuff on her hands, and I didn't blame her. I shook my head and then I pointed to the restrooms, which smelled as bad as the gunk we, we were covered with. She frowned, ordered a pack of zigzag whites, and then split. I looked at the time. 6.45 a.m., almost time to go. Casper Malik, the morning guy, also the owner of the JJ's gas station, should arrive any minute. This was a relief. I did a quick inventory, then tried again to wash whatever it was from my hands. And that's when I noticed the red spots. Both my hands were covered in large red welds. That's odd, I thought. I scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed and eventually removed the greasy substance from my hands. I'll have to toss my clothes straight into the washer when I get home. That is, if it's not too late to salvage them. They were nearly disintegrated. I didn't go near the palms. The drive home was difficult at best. It took a measurable effort to hold onto the steering wheel of my F-150. The pain was insufferable. Blood was leaking from my fingernails, staining the steering wheel, which made me furious. I love my truck. Seeing how it's a 25-minute drive to the hospital on a good day, and I was too tired to bother I simply retired to the comfort of my bed at the moment that I got home. Probably when I wake up, my hands would be fine. So I slept. I arose sometime afternoon, feeling miserable and underslept. I stumbled to the bathroom to pee. When I reached for my you-know-what, I almost leapt out of my skin. My hands were skeletons. Most of my skin and everything was gone, rendering them pink and useless. Only a thin layer of translucent skin remained. The rest was a bone. The pain was egregious. I ended up peeing all over my floor. Not a good way to start the day. I was hungry, ravenous, so I went to work making bacon and eggs, but I gave up soon thereafter. I was in too much discomfort. That's it, I said aloud. If I can't make bacon and eggs, then I must be in rough shape. Reluctantly, and with a million razor blades scratching at my fingers, I found my coat, my wallet, and my keys. Every movement hurt more than the last. The remaining skin continued to peel off my hands. 
leaving tiny flakes on whatever I touched as evidence. Since it was impossible for me to drive, I went for my whiskey. After painfully opening the bottle and tossing three good shots down my throat, I called 911. This was an all-time low. I pictured Charlene, my dead wife, rolling her eyes and pointing her finger at me as she gave me the appropriate advice. A wave of sorrow fell upon me. Truly, I could use their wisdom and patience right about now. I was a mess. The ambulance arrived. They took one look at me, recoiled, and then sped me straight to the emergency room, where I was immediately escorted into a small white room with cold steel instruments that I imagined would cause me more misery. I was correct. A male nurse rushed in. He had put some cream on my disparaged hands and then applied a bandage. I screamed during the entire process. More nurses arrived. They were dressed in what looked to be like spacesuits. I felt like a leper. Maybe I was one. By the time a qualified doctor was able to see me, I had no skin left on either of my hands. I couldn't stop screaming. After being poked and prodded and tested and tormented, I passed out. They probably dosed me with something. I woke up sometime later in a hospital bed, wearing nothing but a blue gown. Both my hands were missing. This must be a mistake, I told myself in a fit of panic. I flailed around, flapping my arms like a bird, even though they still felt attached. This was a terrible and peculiar sensation, to say the least. Reluctantly, I stared at my body in shock and disbelief. My hands were nothing more than two stumps. My arms were inflamed and constantly itchy, and the pain was unbearable. I started shrieking and convulsing and soon went into shock. They gave me some medication which worked to calm my mind, but I was still upset, as you could imagine. There goes my employment, I remember thinking. And then a more serious question arose. How the heck can I pleasure myself without any hands? It's a stupid question, I know, but still. If you were in my shoes, maybe you would understand. After answering a plethora of questions by doctors and police officers alike, all of which I had no answer to, because I refused to speak of the stranger driving the black Monte Carlo SS, I was released, and I was told to see a specialist the following day. As I was leaving the hospital, I bumped into the hippie chick. Both of her hands were in bloody stumps. I was staring at my shoes as we passed. When she saw me, she freaked out and started shouting accusations at me. Her bandages weren't in the best shape either. I couldn't leave soon enough. Two weeks had passed since then. These specialists prescribed strong painkillers which don't work and set up a series of in-home appointments which are proving to be useless. I'm a shell of my former self. I no longer have a job, of course, but that's only a side note. Both of my arms are gone. And worse, whatever I'm infected with is spreading faster than a bad idea. Soon I'm told that it'll attack my neck and shoulders, along with my heart and lungs and other vital organs. 
and there will be nothing left of me. I'm dissolving. I sure hope that I go fast because I'm in constant agony. I need 24 hours supervision and my money is dwindling faster than my own body. You may have seen my story on the news. They've dubbed me the incredible shrinking man. It's cute, I know. I wish the press would leave me be. But you know what they say about wishes. I've received little to no encouragement from any of the doctors or the other specialists. But I have been trained to run my computer solely by the sound of my voice. That's how I'm dictating this story. What a time to be alive, am I right? It doesn't matter really. Because they'll be moving me to an isolated government facility by the end of this week. They want to administer a series of tests on me. Lucky me, right? So, this is a warning. If you're anywhere in the state of Colorado, and you happen to come across a black Monte Carlo SS, get away as fast as you can. Unless, of course, you want to end up like me, which I can assure you that you don't. I'm knocking on death's door. Doctors say that there'll be nothing left of me by Christmas, which is a-okay with me. Looks like I'll be spending Christmas with my Charlene this year. Thank God for small miracles. Typing. Written by T. Duarte 11. Anna is typing. What the heck? I muttered to myself. When I let my grief and loneliness compel me to text my dead girlfriend, I didn't exactly expect her to text me back. But there they were. Four words written on my phone screen, sending a wave of confusion through my mind and making my eyes go wide. I miss you too, the text read. Somebody found her phone. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Who are you? And where did you find this phone? I texted back. My eyes stayed fixed on the screen as I waited for the person to reply. We never found Anna's phone after the accident. At that time, I would do anything to get it back. She was always taking photos of us and recording everything that we ever did. I would love to relive those moments just one more time, even if it was only through the screen of her phone. After a good couple of minutes went by, I realized the person wasn't going to text me back. They probably decided they weren't willing to give back a perfectly good phone they had just found. A-hole. I muttered as I tossed my phone to the side and went to sleep. The next morning, I was getting ready to go to work when I got another notification on my phone. Matt, it's really me, it read. You gotta be kidding me, I thought. Who the heck was doing this? Feeling my face burn with anger, I started to type out a response. Look, you prick, this isn't funny. I don't know where you found this phone, but how about you try to be a decent human being and actually give it back? That phone belonged to my girlfriend before she passed away. There are photos in it, videos, and memories. After sending that text, I just stood there in the middle of my bedroom, breathing heavily from my grief-fueled anger. 
as I stared down at my phone, waiting for a response. Nothing. I was already late for work, so I just I shoved the phone into my pocket and headed out the door. When I came back home from my job later that night, I heard my phone chime just as I stepped through the front door. Before even checking, I already knew who it was. I shoved my hand into my pocket and dug out my phone. How was your day? Said the text in the screen. As I read the words, I felt my face heating up once again. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're probably wondering why I didn't just block them. But the truth is, I couldn't bring myself to. I knew that it wasn't Anna, but I still couldn't bring myself to block her number. Fuming, I began to type out my response. You're scum. You're impersonating someone's dead loved one just for fun. What's wrong with you? After hitting sand, I was ready to just put my phone back into my pocket and carry on with my night. But something surprised me. Another notification sound. Why are you being this way? The next message said. I quickly texted them back. Because you're pretending to be my girlfriend. What the heck is wrong with you? Matt, it is me. I screw off, I replied. I was getting angrier by the minute. I wanted to do something, anything. I didn't want Anna's phone in the hands of whomever that was. But what could I really do? I had no idea what steps to take in a situation like this. I knew that there were ways to track lost phones and stuff. But I didn't know how to go about it. My anger was starting to get mixed up with an overwhelming feeling of frustration. And then another text popped up on the screen. What it said completely shocked me. Did you not mean what you said to me when we were camping last year? My eyes bulged as I stared at the words in utter disbelief. There was no way anyone could have known about this. It was something personal. Something only the two of us knew about. With my and Ryan racing, I started to type. How do you know about that? I asked. Because it's me, Matt. It's really me. I don't even know how long I just stared down on my phone screen. I tried my best to rationalize what was happening. But no matter how much I tried, nothing really clicked. There was no way that anyone else could have known about that. We never told anyone about the trip. I mean, there probably were photos of it in Anna's phone. But how the heck did they know about what I said to her? With trembling fingers, I managed to start typing. So, what did I say? I asked. A minute or so went by and then another text appeared. It was the first time you told me that you loved me. I had already said it to you long before that. But you needed your time and I was okay with it. Then on that night, when we were both lying in our tent, you finally said it. My heart started pounding against my chest as I read those words. Before I could even react, another text popped up. After that, you told me that you would always be by my side, and that you would never turn your back on me. Why are you turning your back on me now, Matt? I felt hot tears welling up. Some of you will judge me. 
Some will say that there are hundreds, maybe thousands of logical explanations, but I guess I just didn't care. Maybe I chose to believe it because I just missed her too much. That's why I even texted her number in the first place, knowing full well that she was not going to respond. I just needed to feel like I was talking to her. I just needed her. How is this possible? I texted back. I don't know yet. I'm kind of new to this whole being dead thing, she replied. At that point, I couldn't fight back the tears anymore. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. I should have been there with you. We should have been together. I texted, barely managing to see the screen through the blur of my teary eyes. Her response popped up almost immediately. Well, then we both would have been gone, silly. Before I could say anything, another text appeared on the screen. How long have I been dead? My mind was immediately flooded with memories of the accident as I read that message. The sadness that came with it overwhelmed me, and I had to take a moment before I could reply. Two months. I finally managed to type in between sobs and sniffles. She didn't say anything back, so I started to type again. Where are you and how are you texting me right now? How is it even possible? Those were only a few of the thousands of questions running through my mind. Her reply popped up on the screen seconds after. I don't know where I am, but it's dark. Really dark. I just woke up here yesterday and my phone was in my pocket. The first thing I did was text you. But after that, I lost consciousness for hours. Same thing happened the second time. I don't know why. I didn't know what to say, so I asked her another question. Are there others like you in there? Yeah, I see them roaming around in the dark sometimes. Some of them just seem lost, but there are others who seem to just watch. Sometimes they even smile at me. It freaks me out. The hairs on my body stood on end as I read that, but before I could even reply, another text popped up on the screen. I gotta go now. We'll talk more tomorrow. I love you. Just as I read it, I watched the little online disappear from under her name. A million thoughts started racing through my mind, leaving me just to stand there, phone in hand, mouth gaped. That night, I barely slept. I kept reading my conversation with Anna over and over again. One sleep finally came. I dreamed of her. In my dream, the accident never happened. We were back together in our house and I sat on the couch, watching as she walked up to me with a ball of popcorn in her hands and that beautiful smile painted across her face. But when my alarm went off that morning, I was alone once again, with the dead silence of my apartment cementing the fact that it was all just a dream. As I snapped back into reality, I quickly sat myself upright, desperately looking through the sheets and covers of my bed in search of my phone. Once I found it, I immediately ran the tip of my finger across the screen to unlock it, dying to see if there was a new message from her. My heart sank when I saw that there weren't any. 
If it weren't for our previous text from last night, serving as evidence of the unimaginable, I would have thought that it was just another dream, fueled by the overwhelming grief that I felt. With a heavy heart, I got out of bed and headed for the bathroom. That's when I heard my phone chiming, letting me know that I had just received a new message. I practically darted out of the bathroom and back into the room, heading for my phone that had been set atop my nightstand. Just as I had unlocked the screen, I was greeted by a text from Anna. Good morning, it read. As I read those two words, I couldn't help but smile. And that's how it all started. For months, I kept on texting my dead girlfriend. And throughout those months, I was finally happy again. It was just like when we had started dating. I didn't have any family left. Anna was all that I'd ever had since we were both 20. She was my whole world and then she was taken from me. So, to have her in my life again was something that I can't even describe. Even if I couldn't see her or touch her, having her personality back in my life was more than enough to rescue me from the hole that I was in. Things were good and I was happy. Until one night, I woke to my phone chiming at around 2am. She was texting me in the middle of the night, something she never did. Matt, wake up, wake up please, I need your help. They're everywhere, they're coming to get me. The words I read knocked all remnants of sleep out of me, and I quickly typed out my reply. What's going on and who are they? The others, the other dead people, they're coming for me but they're different. Their eyes are black. Please, Matt, help me. The text read on my screen. What can I do? I managed to type out with trembling fingers. I was now sitting upright in my bed, intently staring down at my phone, waiting for a response. Around five minutes had gone by without her saying anything. I was beginning to get worried. When suddenly, her reply popped on the screen. I need you to get me out of here. How? I asked. I need you to welcome me into your life. Do you accept me, Matt? I hastily texted back. I do. Of course I do. No, I need you to say it out loud. What? Why? Just trust me, Matt. There isn't much time. It's the only way that we can be together again. I had no idea what was happening, but I was willing to do anything to help her to help her get out of that place and to feel her in my arms again. I welcome you into my life, I said out loud, practically shouting. After saying the words, I looked at my phone again, desperate to see what she was going to say next. However, all I saw was the word offline written under her name. That night, I barely slept. I couldn't stop thinking about what might have happened to Anna. The next morning, I was up before my alarm even went off. I had dreamed of Anna all night. Nightmares of her lost in a dark place, being chased by shapeless shadows. Once I was awake, the first thing I did was check my phone. Nothing, still offline. I hardly got anything done at work that day. All I could do was think about her. I couldn't lose her again. When I got home, I checked my phone yet again, and just like in the morning, there was nothing. No new messages. 
That same feeling from when I had lost her the first time started to creep into the pit of my stomach. I felt like a knife had been plunged into my gut, and the more I thought about her, the harder it became to breathe. I spent the rest of that night in bed. For hours, I just lied there, staring into the ceiling. After a while, I was finally able to fall asleep. A few hours later, I was woken up to the chilling sound of someone whispering inside my bedroom. It was almost pitch black in the room. The only source of light was the dim glow that came from one of these streetlights outside and shined through my window. I sat myself up and looked around my bedroom, trying to find the source of the whispers with goosebumps raised all over my body. Was I hearing things? I thought. But then I heard it again, this time loud and clear. Up here. Shivers went down my spine and I felt my blood run cold. Slowly, I raised my head to look up. And that's when I saw it. There was a woman on the ceiling just above the doorframe. Her skin was disgustingly pale. And she was impossibly thin. To the point where you could see the outline of her bones. She wore a torn up white gown and her long black hair dangled from her hat. She was looking at me from upside down with her bulging all black eyes and a smile that went from ear to ear, displaying a huge set of razor sharp teeth. Seconds felt like hours as I sat there paralyzed, with her just staring at me and smiling. My breathing became heavy and no matter how much I wanted to, I just couldn't move. I was frozen. A faint smell of decay seeped into the air and began to fill my nostrils. Suddenly, the woman started to drag herself forward across the ceiling, her eyes never leaving me, her smile never wavering. Every time she moved, one of her limbs to pull herself forward, a loud crackling of bones would echo through the room, and a deathly shriek would escape her mouth. But her lips never moved and her smile only got wider with each time. Once, she was almost directly above me. She let herself fall to the floor, making a thud as she landed, right by the foot of my bed. The sounds of bones cracking erupted once again, and I watched in horror as she slowly crawled under my bed and out of my sight. She's been there for a while now. I don't even know how long, hours maybe. I'm just too scared to move. Every now and then she giggles and I hear it right from under me. I started typing this in hope that someone here would know how to help. If you know anything about what to do in a situation like this, please help me. I don't think I have much longer. About a minute ago, I got a notification on my phone. It was a text from Anna. I found an unnamed antique store in the middle of nowhere. The owner wasn't human. Written by Dr. Horrible 26. It was almost 2 a.m. before I was even halfway home after a rather long late night shift. Great, just my luck. What did I do to do this? I just want to go home. I yelled to myself in my car along with a slew of other words, as my dashboard began to flash like a Christmas light, and the engine began making noises that didn't sound like noises an engine should be making. 
Not long after that, it began to smoke up, which an engine definitely shouldn't be doing. I managed to find a mechanic close enough to drive to before it completely broke down. So, how long do you think it'll take? I asked the mechanic, a scruffy, stereotypical hillbilly, maybe mid-50s, with a patchy long beard, and what looked like an even patchier head of hair under his trucker hat. He went on about some car talk that I didn't understand, scratching his butt the whole time before finally answering. It won't take long, I'm fast with my hands. I raised an eyebrow. Okay, but how long do you think exactly? I asked, somewhat annoyed. Uh, ten hours, maybe a little bit less, he said, before spitting next to his boot. Uh, exact time, okay. I sat with a sigh before paying for my repair. Appreciate it. Enjoy Mammonville County, he said with a smirk, as he swiped the cash from my hands and stuffed it into his pocket, not even bothering to comment. I figured I would try to find somewhere to eat, considering that I had missed out on dinner and breakfast would be rolling up soon enough. So I called my wife to explain the situation, asked if she needed anything, and then left the shop. This town was basically in the middle of nowhere, but just barely. It was the type of tiny town that you drive through all the time but never stop at. I found a 24-7 diner that was actually pretty good. I definitely picked out, seriously though, six pancakes topped with ice cream and a side of eggs and bacon for six bucks. It's too good to pass up. Thanks to my rather large early breakfast, along with a morning dessert, I managed to pass about three hours along with maybe another hour of playing on my phone before paying for my meal and leaving the diner. On my way back to the shop, I came across a rather strange-looking building. It looked like a tiny two-room shack, and it was rather far from every other building in the town. I was going to walk right past it till I read the faded sign hanging on the window. Antiques and nostalgia for cheap. Huh. Strange. Never heard of anyone selling nostalgia. I assumed that it meant nostalgic items. And me and my wife were suckers for old collectibles from our childhood. So I decided that I would give it a look. I walked in expecting to see some tiny run-down thrift shop, but no. This building worked like a TARDIS. Bigger on the inside and much cleaner. My brain was having a system reboot, just attempting to process what I was seeing. I tried to think of a logical, realistic explanation for it, but there wasn't one. The place was just larger on the inside. It looked never-ending, in fact. Just a void with blue honeycomb carpeting, Greek palace-like walls, and a single long aisle, with haunting angelic opera music playing throughout. As I tried taking in my surroundings, a man's voice brought me back to reality. Well, maybe that isn't the best word for it. Welcome, sir. How are you tonight? Unlike everyone else's voice that I've encountered in this town, his was a dignified, proper. He spoke like the type of rich guy who feels obligated to talk classy. 
I looked over to my left to see a pale man with a goatee and long slicked back black hair standing behind a seemingly never-ending desk with only a single open book of names with dates of purchases, some looking to date back all the way to the 1500s. The man was dressed like a bartender that you would see in an old western movie, wearing a red bow tie and black dress pants, a black suit vest with a white button up underneath it, the sleeves rolled to the elbow. Hmm, this, but what, how? I blubbered out of confusion, trying to ask where I was before being cut off. Where are you? An antique store, as the sign says. As you can see, I'm quite the collector. I needed a place to be able to hold all that I have for sale, and this place worked perfectly. Please, feel free to browse to your heart's content. He encouraged, explaining things so laid back. I did so, trying to ignore the whole infinity room thing, as I traveled down the single endless row of shelves. These were all items that would be better suited to be sold in an auction for millionaires. Rifles and flintlock pistols apparently used in the American Revolution. Samurai blades and masterfully crafted armor from the feudal period. Personal letters and journals of historical figures like Nikola Tesla, Lu Bu, and every president in history, from the US or any other country. What solidified this stuff's authenticity for me was the jewelry. You see, I've been a jeweler for over 10 years, specifically in the authenticity department, meaning that it's my job to spot the difference between real and fake gems and ores. So if these things weren't real, they were the most well-made fakes that I had ever come across. And as the sign had promised, it was all for cheap. I mean prices like $2, $3 a dollar. But next to each dollar, there was a different symbol. A Y with a lowercase e in the center of it. I figured it was just another form of currency from another country but noted that it was strange as that there were no other symbols to any other countries aside from America and this unknown place. My greed got the best of me, grabbing about 10 things from the Stone and Iron Age for a whopping 13 bucks in total. However, during my shopping spree, I noticed that there was nothing past the time of World War II, certainly nothing from my younger years. The shopkeeper must have been able to read my mind, because the second that it popped into my head, I heard his voice once more from right next to me. Can I help you with anything, sir? I jumped back, feeling my heart jump into my throat. I didn't even hear him come up to me. It was like his footsteps were silent. Uh, yeah, hi. You got anything more recent? Like mid-80s to late-90s. The sign did say nostalgia. All this is kind of old. I asked, trying to ignore the fact he had just Houdini'd over to me. When I did, I could see a large, pearly white grin spread across his face. One that was a little too wide. Ah, you're looking for something more personal. That would be in the other room. This way, please. 
he said, extending his arm forward and standing aside. As we made our way to the front desk, I realized that there was a door next to the entrance that I had completely missed on my way in. As we passed the desk, he stopped and turned to me. Would you like to pay for these now so you could leave them at the desk while we continue? Or would you prefer to lug it around? He had asked, pointing down to the pile of medieval and caveman relics in my arms. I shrugged and decided to do so, and he bagged them and left them on the desk for when I was ready to leave, insisting that we end the deal with a handshake, despite the fact that our business wasn't over, before entering into the back room. Rather than any shelves, it was a single large podium, illuminated by a row of LED lights. So, where's the stuff? I asked, slightly worried that he might have brought me back here to butcher me or something. He shook his head and clicked his tongue. Oh no, not personal items. I can offer you something much better. He said as he flipped a switch, lowering down the podium to surface level. I can offer you the chance to relive some of your fondest memories as if it were the first time. I raised my eyebrow and crossed my arms. And what do you mean by that? I asked. He flashed that large grin once more. I mean even the most vivid dream couldn't compare to the feeling of nostalgia that I can grant you. I can bring you to the very source of that nostalgia. Just step on the podium. Think of the memory that you would like to enter. And close your eyes. He said with great charisma. I looked back and forth between him and the podium before shrugging. All right, I guess. Why not? I said. Splendid. He then guided me to the podium, instructed me once more, before shaking my hand again and telling me to have fun. I did so, closing my eyes and opening them to see myself in the mirror. Seventeen years ago in college. I knew exactly the day too, seeing that I was wearing the goofy Reese's shirt and baggy sweatpants, along with my roommate playing Ocarina of Time on our crappy little TV, asking me if I was ready for Benny's party, the very party that I met my wife. It was the strangest feeling. I don't even really know how to describe it. I knew that I was in the past, but at the same time, had absolutely no clue that I was reliving my life. I both could and couldn't speak and move freely, as trying to say anything about the future would make me forgetful and quickly moving on from the topic. It was, as he said, better than any vivid dream you could imagine. The night went as perfect as I can remember, from the enjoyment of reliving a crazy party from my younger years, but more importantly, the feeling of meeting Stephanie for the first time. I remember going mush-brained on sight, getting trashed enough to try and talk to her, getting her old phone number that I'd almost forgotten, down to the end of the night ending with how any truly romantic college love story normally starts. A drunk one-night stand, and waking up realizing that we like doing more than hooking up at frat parties. Not long after she left my dorm the next morning, 
I woke up back into the empty room with the suited man. Well, did you enjoy yourself? He asked with a confident smirk. It took me a few moments to remember that I had just purchased temporary time travel and it was crazy. Holy crap, that was something else, man. How much was it? I asked to fish out my wallet from my pocket. He waved his hand in the air with a cheeky grin. Not necessary. You've already paid in full. He said as he had raised the podium with the number 15. And that same strange Y symbol labeled on the price tags. Unlike the price tags, there was no regular dollar sign next to it. I scratched and I looked at him. What does this Y thing mean anyway? I asked, tapping the metal plate that it was engraved on. His response made me freeze from fear. His grin grew much wider. Years, Mr. Talbert, he announced. I stared at him for a while in shock. How, how do you know my name? I asked. I could hear the shakiness in my voice as I had asked it. Why, I know everything about Ryan. I know you were born on November 4th, 1986. I know that you almost died of hypothermia when you were eight trying to catch Santa on Christmas. I know that you have twins, Samuel and Samantha. Lovely children, by the way. Need I go on? He said as he crossed his arms. I tried to register the fact that this man I have never seen before in my life. He knew everything about it. I was so lost about it that I almost completely forgot the first part of his answer. What do you mean years? I asked cautiously. He threw his head back with a laugh. Is it not obvious? You've paid to relive one of your fondest memories in your past, in exchange for possible memories in the future. He explained matter-of-factly. Does so, does... I tried to mumble out of my somewhat nerve-induced, paralyzed mouth before he answered the questions for me before I could finish asking. Yes, Ryan, you've just given me 15 years of your life. Of course, that's not including the previously spent 13, so that would be 28 years of your life, he had said, with a sting in his voice, like a loan shark who had swindled his biggest debt, racked schmuck. But I gave you money for those things out there, I yelled, almost in a plea after hearing my remaining lifespan had been shortened by at least a quarter, if I'm lucky. He clicked his tongue again and flashed that same cheeky grin. You can think of that as a donation of sorts. After all, you'll most likely sell at least one of those items for a large sum of money. Surely you won't mind a thirteen. I could feel my rage boil, melting over my frozen paralysis, charging the man ready to beat the crap out of him. You tricked me, I yelled, swinging my fist towards his face, only to land straight onto mine as my knuckles connected with empty air. Tricked you? I heard him say from my left. His voice seemed different though. It was deeper than anything a human can make. I slowly turned to see a set of crouched, goat-like legs with shiny gold-plated hooves. I slowly looked up to see a half-goat, half-goblin-like creature with crimson red skin, 
a wolf-like snout filled with gold and even diamond teeth, and eyes that seemed to glow silver. He wore an excessive amount of the finest jewelry, along with a large platinum crown. You came into the store on your own accord, did you not? He asked, grabbing the hair from the back of my head and pulling it upwards to meet him face to face, his bright, silver eyes staring right through me. You had plenty of opportunity to ask what that symbol could mean. Did you ask the price for reliving your memory? No, you let your greed guide you, and you paid the price for it. Now please take your items and leave. Or shop some more if you'd like, he mocked. Just remember, we don't forget to shake on it when you're done. He finished with another laugh, before dropping my head back to the ground. My body felt like it was made of stone, causing me to smack it rather hard, putting me in a heavy daze. I dared not argue with whatever he was, but could only ask one question. Are you... Are you the devil? I was horrified at the beast that I was seeing. He cackled and slapped his knee. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard that one, thinking about it, I probably do. No, the old man has no need for such a thing. I mean, neither do I. But there's something just so fascinating, not to mention hilarious about messing with your human minds. Now, would you like to keep this chit-chat going? He started as he tapped a solid gold watch wrapped around his wrist. I couldn't even say anything, just stare in shock and awe. After a minute, he sighed. All right, then. He muttered before snapping his fingers. Suddenly, I was waking up in my car, completely repaired, outside the shop, not even an hour after originally entering. I tried to convince myself that it was a dream, until I looked at my passenger seat to see my bag of recently purchased goods. I didn't know how to react, so I simply drove home in complete silence, just running loops in my head about what had just happened. When I got home, I was greeted by my family. The kids asked to play while Stephanie welcomed me home as she got ready for work. I tried my best to keep my composure, but seeing the ones that I loved most, right after being told my life had been shortened, cut me deeply. Well, I'm sure they saw it on my face, as the kids gave me a confused look while my wife asked me if everything was okay. I simply told her that it was just a long night, and that I was just happy to be home. As he said, I sold most of the items purchased, a lot of cash being put aside for Sam and Sam once I passed. It's been about 14 years since then, and yesterday morning I got a call from the hospital telling me that they had my test results after a rather violent asthma attack a few weeks prior. They said that it was lung cancer, untreatable. I'd been given an estimate of three years left at best. I'm thinking of taking one more trip to Mammonville, even if only to see if the place still stands and if it does. Well, I've already been given my death date. What's another year or two? Might as well get them one last gift. That'll do it for this week's stories. You're one of the elite few that have made it to the very end here, and I honestly really appreciate that, so thank you. 
I also really appreciate this week's sponsors, Coinbase. For a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash mrcreeps. And Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com slash mrcreeps to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. I hope you're all having a fantastic April, and that continues as we inch closer to summertime. Wherever you may be in the world, have an amazing morning, day, or night, and as always, stay creepy.